Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to a fresh episode of Widerschergang. My name is Matthew Schmidt and I'm a professional cyclist. This podcast is about all the stuff we experience on our journey as cyclists when the TV cameras are off. This is an episode I've been looking forward to shoot. With me for this podcast is my teammate Chris Froome, four-time winner of the Tour de France and every other race a GC rider would ever dream of winning. We just finished Dauphiné and went straight to the top of a mountain in the French Alps for a training camp. So we sat down for a talk about Chris and his life since turning pro in 2008. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, I would be very happy if you would leave a comment and give me some ratings. So... Chris Froome, welcome to my podcast. I am happy to do this episode with you. We are in the Alps, in the mountains. We are in the cloud most of the day, training after Dauphiné. And uh, how are you feeling? Cheers, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me on on your podcast. Um, yeah, we're we're up in the in the mountains uh, again. <laughs> um, feels like uh, the story of my life, really. Um, if I'm not at a race, I'm always up in the mountains somewhere, training and preparing for the next goal. And uh, yeah, we've uh, just come out of the Dauphiné. Dauphiné was a pretty full gas week of racing, as usual. As usual. So yeah. Um, yeah, nice to nice to have a few easy days together and still be with the team and um, hopefully shaping up, uh, working towards the Tour de France. Yeah. Last time I saw you was in uh, in Romandy, and you progressed progressed quite a lot since then. Uh, you were in training camp in Tenerife before here, so yeah, you seem a lot better. Yeah, I think I think things are certainly heading in the right direction. Yeah. I think um, from the outside, people still see that I'm I'm not at the front. Uh, fighting for the victory uh, yet and I think a lot of people can be can be quite critical and uh, not really knowing exactly where I've come from yeah but certainly people are closer to to the story and people who can see the progression and see um, for example how far I've come this season already um, I think uh, yeah would have a much better judgment of that so yeah. um, I'm really really happy really staying uh, very positive very upbeat that uh, things are heading in the right direction now um, it's still going to take a lot more work to to get back to to where I left off uh, before the big crash uh, but uh, I'm staying staying optimistic and uh, hoping that uh, I just need to keep my head down, keep working, and hopefully I'll get there. Yeah. I think most of the critics, they are people who don't really know cycling. Because <laughs> <laughs> in, in the peloton, a lot of guys, like I've been talking around, and a lot of guys, they have serious respect for you from what you've come from. So uh, that's also that. nice to hear around in, in the peloton. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks, man. No, I mean, it's it's amazing to see the sport. I mean, uh, from within the peloton and even even from, from fans. I mean, a lot of people have been on this journey with me. Um, this year, I've tried to try to open up a little bit more and share a little bit more of, of my journey with, with fans on, on YouTube. And um, it's it's just been amazing the the sort of response from people and the number of people getting in touch and uh, obviously uh, wishing me all the best in terms of the recovery. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty special. Yeah. So we're training camp. You're at training camp once again. I guess it's the fourth or fifth of this year. <laughs> yeah it feels like it feels like my life is just one big training camp i mean um 
yeah, I love I love being at home with uh, obviously I've got two two really young kids at the moment, so I mean it's it's a lot of time on the road, especially with them. So it's a lot of pressure on my wife to mm. to be looking after them. But um, yeah, I, I think it, given uh, given the job that we're doing, it's it's just so full on. I mean, professional cycling, you. The way I see it is, you you give it everything, or you can you can just give up right there because yeah, uh, yeah it's a lifestyle. It's not just a it's not just a job. It's it's a it's a way of living. Yeah, but you're you're the type of rider who use training camps more than racing to get in shape. If I'm correct. Yeah, typically. And yeah, historically, why is that? Like, I'd say historically. I mean, um, I, I spent a lot of time. Um, in training camps because obviously in in training environment uh you can control very much what kind of uh what kind of workouts you're doing what kind of sessions you're doing what what you're actually working on to to improve whereas when you go to a race you you're basically just obviously you're you're following the wheel you you're sprinting out of corners you you it's a very different animal uh a race to to a training camp yeah you're also a climber and yeah i mean most of the I, camps, i think i gain more from doing races than training camps because i need those accelerations for the stuff that i'm good at so maybe that's yeah that that's the difference between guys like you and guys like me yeah i think strangely enough that's actually where i'm probably um finding it the hardest at the moment is to get back into that race rhythm with all the accelerations in the peloton and everything so i i could definitely do with uh yeah a few more few more race days in the legs uh, i definitely <laughs> feel that whenever i do a race i, I come out feeling feeling better than when, than i went in so yeah. yeah good so the podcast is called rüderschergang in danish it's rüderschergang and um it's like rider lingo and every guest brings some rider lingo to the podcast so uh let's hear it <laughs> there's uh there's one word i guess for the last decade that has uh always i guess defined moments in in the race for me um and that word probably came from uh maybe the the british influence on the team yeah. uh it's sky and um that word is uh squeeze squeeze <laughs> squeeze <laughs> Uh, has to be said like that so it's yeah. uh <laughs> i'm gonna put it's, that on my cover picture <laughs> <laughs> and it's basically it's that moment in the race where everyone's kind of on the limit um you, you've been climbing probably for 20 30 minutes already like and it's that moment that you're gonna make the difference in the race and you you, you ask one of your teammates okay it's time now squeeze you call on the radio and you yeah. say squeeze get on the radio and be like okay come on man squeeze <laughs> and it's uh yeah pace just goes up another 20 30 watts and you can just see okay when that guy's pulls over that's the time to attack so yeah. ah, <laughs> nice that's a good one that's a really good one actually okay so i have these questions i ask for everybody um your favorite training loop favorite training loop yeah um <clears throat> i'd probably say uh so, so living living down in the south of france uh just out of monaco um the the training from there is is incredible we, we're really spoiled uh with with the mountains down there i mean yeah. obviously it's, it's busy in the city and, and down on the coast but typically uh most of us who, who live in monaco we we go straight back into the mountains when yeah. we go training and there's there's a loop i like to do out there um which basically goes directly back into the mountains and one of the most quiet unspoiled roads around there is uh Col de Saint Roche. Yeah. Uh it's kind of you you go through these very small villages like mountain villages it's uh it's a lot of uh, rivers a lot of uh, forests um and it's 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 climbing i mean you're climbing all day basically yeah. and uh, from there you can get up to uh from Col de uh, San Roche you get up uh, towards uh, the top of Turini which is close to 2000 meters yeah. um and you start at zero basically and you're starting at sea level so yeah. um that's probably you can do a four or five hour ride and you're up at 2000 meters and back down to sea level again so it's it's probably one of my favorite loops 
And you have specific work for this uh, loop, or you just um, not really? Have I, something I wouldn't where you normally just smash it every time. Or? Yeah, I wouldn't normally go and do intervals there. Um, quite often, I'd, I'd enjoy going and doing it, uh, doing it with a friend, so you've got someone to to speak to, but just ride like a solid tempo on the climbs, mm. and uh, yeah, um, I. I just reminisce i guess uh days i used to go up there with uh with richie port uh yeah. just two of us kind of like half wheeling each other all the <laughs> way up <laughs> and uh trying to get trying to get one over each other but uh yeah definitely definitely made us strong that loop yeah cool and important one are you a coffee stop guy Yes and no. I think there are th there Depends. are times there are times of the year where I definitely need a little bit of motivation to get me uh, that little bit further away from home. And by choosing a, a good coffee stop, it's like okay, that gives me a goal to yeah. get to get to that point. Sometimes and I even ride just for the coffee stop. Yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> I mean, especially around sort of November, maybe when you're just getting back into it, January, even when the weather's not great, and you're just like, oh, I don't really want to go outside. Yeah. But um, okay, then you, especially uh, being being where we're based uh, down in the south of France, you can actually. Uh, what's amazing there is, I wouldn't say much about the the French coffee, but if you go just over the border, you're straight into Italy, yeah. and uh, there's there's some amazing places where you can stop and get a really good coffee. Which coffee do you pick then, and what's your menu? You have a snack, you have sweet <laughs> or a savory. Um, I like uh, I like a little macchiato, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, espresso, a little bit of uh, foam, um, yeah. and um, I actually sometimes, quite a lot of the time, um, especially if I'm stopping later in the day, I actually just take a green tea. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a tea drinker. I like a lot, yeah, a lot of I've tea. I've noticed that you have your uh, <laughs> it's like a protein shake, but. Uh, <laughs> It's always uh, tea in it. Yeah, I'm even starting to drink more tea now. <laughs> no, I enjoy tea. I enjoy tea. I think it's uh, it's more interesting than drinking water. So uh, yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, quite often if you get over into Italy, then um, around the winter time, it's pretty hard to resist uh, um, panini or a piadini, mm. uh, fresh mozzarella, proper yeah. um, prosciutto crudo as well. It's yeah. Yeah, you can't really turn that down when when it's offered to you. So, coffee stop guy. Cool. <laughs> we're gonna hope we're gonna have a coffee stop here in uh, in France. <laughs> Heard about there was a nice coffee place down the down the road here. You have to bring your own coffee if you stop for coffee in France. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Your craziest day on a bike. Craziest day on a bike. I guess you've had a lot. I've had a few in my time, yeah. Um I mean, um, I think it gets it'd be pretty hard to top the Giro d'Italia stage 19. Um, yeah, I remember that. That was a pretty crazy day. I think, and it, it just got crazier and crazier as the day went on. I mean, it, it went from, so I mean, just to set the scene, I mean, obviously I uh, started off the Giro d'Italia, I crashed uh, before the first time trial. Oh uh, yeah, you went down doing, in Israel. In Israel, exactly, yeah. yeah. So I was checking out the course and I just overcooked one of the corners. And Maybe um, you should stop checking out TT courses, actually. Uh, I, it's where, you don't have a history no, there. No, a no, good no. History. It's funny because actually you say that. I came to checking out the TT course at the Dauphiné here and I went into my normal zone where I'm like, okay, I'm going to try and push the corners and see how much much i can go around the corners like <laughs> and actually i was like hold on a second you don't know what's on the other side of this corner no. just take it easy yeah. you're gonna go just super slow the first time <laughs> and not gonna push anything so i've learned my lesson now eventually yeah. after after the few big crashes um but yeah uh that giro i i started off really on the back foot i just wasn't myself after that crash and i was just losing time every every test every mountaintop finish i was i was, I, was uh, I i just wasn't feeling myself um, after two weeks of just hanging on, uh, I think I was almost four minutes down in GC. I, I think I still had this sort of hope in in my in my mind that I'd come round, and that knowing the Giro d'Italia, it's it's the only Grand Tour that seems that it can really just change in yeah. the last week. Yeah. You have one, exactly. especially that Giro d'Italia was so heavily loaded in the mountains in that third week. You can have 
just one bad day if you're leading and you're out the window and the same if you're not right up there you have one good day and you could suddenly be right up there so it's I had this sort of hope in my mind that I'd be able to find an opportunity and the cracks had started showing on the stages before Simon Yates was in the pink jersey and he'd been so dominant the whole race and then the stage before stage 19 he just lost a little bit of time it was only 10 15 seconds but he just couldn't follow the wheel and it was yeah. like oh there's there's cracks there yeah and um then we had the the queen stage of the giro and it was going over col de la finestra uh and um and then two two more big climbs up to to bardonecchia to finish the stage and um i i just thought okay this is the day i just have to go all in here I, i'm gonna try and attack 80 k's to go and just hope that it's uh it's chaos behind and they don't really organize a good chase yeah um so i got the team to go as hard as possible at the bottom of finestra and yeah, reduce that's, that that's where i dropped <laughs> <laughs> i think a lot of people looked at it and thought oh it's still like 80 90 k's to go like what are these guys gonna do here like yeah but uh, I got onto the gravel and I was I got onto the radio with Kenny Ellison. Squeeze, Kenny, squeeze. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he gave one last big pull, and um, and then then I just accelerated a little bit up the pace off the top of that, and uh, no one followed me. And it was just I've seen that on TV. That's not a small acceleration. <laughs> <laughs> like wow, yeah. <laughs> you were going. I, yeah, I can understand why no one wanted to follow. I was still like 80k to go. So, yeah. um, but that was perfect for me. I was in my own little world there and um I just uh, I went from going to to try and win the stage. Um that was my first goal was just to go off and try and win the stage and hopefully move up a couple spots on GC to actually thinking, "Hold on, I'm I'm in in in, in with a chance of the podium now." And then and the gap just kept on growing and it was just incredible every time i went down a descent it was like another 45 seconds more advantage to me yeah. and it was like whoa okay, that long so descent that was not a good descent to be solo on like it was a big road like after sestrier after it was a big road down like you stayed on that road no, for ages it, yeah i mean it was it was i went through some pretty dark spots on my own there uh, at the front especially when it was that big valley road that you meant talking yeah. about now big wide almost like a motorway like, yeah exactly yeah. and i think there was a bit of headwind there as well mm. and I was I was beginning to regret it then, but what was sort of pushing me on at that moment was just hearing the time gaps, and I was getting closer and closer to to riding myself into the pink jersey, and it was just like, hold on, this is crazy. It's gone from just going to try and win the stage to moving up onto the podium to I could actually win the whole thing right yeah. here, right now. So. Yeah. I was just like, okay, I don't care about the headwind, nothing. I'm just going to get in in arrows possible position and i'm just going to keep pushing as hard as i can and um, i think behind there were just a, a whole uh load of events that happened behind uh, for example they the, the the chasing group behind with uh, dumelan they decided to wait for reitenbach to to mm. help uh pull but he he's notoriously bad at descending and mm. it just felt like every time i did a descent i'd gain so much time and then it seemed like in the valleys i think they were <clears throat> they were watching each other and trying to get tom was trying to get the other guys to pull and the other guys didn't want to pull and there were two um two guys sitting on i think yeah. uh, amador and carapaz were probably sitting on i think and um I, I think they just didn't organize the chase very well and they just kept on losing time and uh, I just couldn't believe it. And I was like, okay, well, I've got one climb to go now. I just have to try and I'm going to give everything I've got now to get up this thing and uh, see see what happens at the finish line. And it was just incredible sitting there after the finish, just watching the time. Watching like, the time, Watching yeah. the time and I, like to see that I was in the pink jersey by like 20-something seconds. Was, yeah. I was just like, no way, this is just the most mental day ever on a bike yeah was it planned from the morning to go exactly there and do everything like this yeah i'm i'm very much someone when when i get an idea in my head i i, I visualize it i'll i'll um picture how i want it to be yeah. and 
that was, I can remember speaking to uh, Nicolas Protal, my old uh, former uh, director sportif, who, who sadly passed away. But uh, I remember going to him with the idea and just saying to him, hey man, what do you think? This is a little bit like, a little bit out there, a little bit crazy, but uh, I'm not really on GC at the moment. I'm four minutes down. Let's let's go all in today, and I'll, I'll try and attack solo on the Finestra. Yeah. And he just looked at me with this massive smile, and he's like, "I love it. I love it. <laughs> Come on, let's uh, yeah. let's let's make it happen." And um, yeah, that was it. Yeah. Do you remember stage ten of that Giro? The one where I, I think it was Chavez, he dropped on the first climb. It was like... Yes, I do remember. 250k stage. Yeah, I remember. Full gas all day. I remember. Yeah. And they carried on riding all day because yeah. Chavez dropped on that first yeah. climb. And you know what? You and Volt Pools, you fucked me before the sprint. You? Yeah. Okay, what happened? <laughs> I was in a really good position. And then you came on the inside around this long right-hander. <laughs> I was like, fucking yeah. Then I, I think it was fifth or I was sixth on that stage. Was it? Was it sprinting for sprinting for no, the win? No, we were sprinting for third. Ah, okay. But okay. It was. It would be my first world like, tour result yeah. to be maybe on the podium. Top three, so yeah. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. Assholes. Was it an uphill finish? No, no, no. It was flat, flat okay. finish. But hmm. it was still like four and a half thousand meters of climbing that day. Okay. It was just. I think that that's the hardest day I ever had. On the bike. <laughs> oh, that, that was an insane day. Yeah. It was an insane day. Yeah. And my apologies for cutting you in the final. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. It's okay. We, um, always, uh, we always had this like saying in the team, like um, when we were racing. Um, so when, when we were racing the Tour de France, we'd always say, okay, guys, to like, okay, Tour de France time. Now we, we say sorry in Paris. So yeah. you basically, you do what you have to do on the road and you say sorry in Paris, you apologize in Paris. And I think that was very much the mentality of, of racing. Like if, uh, if, if you don't take a gap, someone else will take it. And yeah, I you, think in you end up losing. it's like that in every team. We all told the same before the race. It feels like that. Yeah. In the race, you don't have friends. We can talk afterwards. That's it. That's what everybody says. That's it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, um, what is your favorite race to go to? I'd probably have to choose. I mean, I, I love the Grand Tours. The Grand Tours are just something. They're a special, special animal. You, <laughs> it's unlike anything else. Three weeks of just day in, day out. Um, I, I find people's true characters will will get tested at some mm. point you you're you're going to be pushed over the limit something will go wrong you're going to be in a crash you're going to have mechanicals you're going to and it's about how you deal with those kind of situations and for me from the grand tours my favorite's always been the vuelta yeah. always uh mainly because of uh, okay you've got really hot temperatures which i've, I've always enjoyed i guess growing up in africa yeah. um meant that i always enjoyed uh I'm, I'm a fair weather cyclist um and um the vuelta for me was always so much less stress than the tour de france yeah. uh, in terms of like uh, bigger roads and 
less stress from a yeah. from a media point of view, public point of view. Yeah. But the racing is incredible. They always put, especially for a GC rider or a climber, they always put like ten, twelve mountain top finishes in the Vuelta. Yeah. Whereas the Tour de France typically would have three or four, maybe. Mm. Um, so it was always the race that, yeah, it was for me the, 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 that would like excite me the most. Yeah, it was also um, it was the first Grand Tour you won. Ended it? up ended up being the first Grand Tour I ever won. I was uh, given the 2011 um, uh, victory retrospectively yeah, yeah. Uh, after Cobo uh, yeah. had had some issues. Um, <clears throat> I came second that year uh, just by what was it? Uh, something like 12 or 14 seconds so um yeah it was actually pretty pretty cool to be given given the victory there yeah the welter okay what is the worst race for you then for um is the race itself or it doesn't fit you bad hotels <laughs> yeah. i think as a as a neo pro um As a neo pro with Barlow World uh, back in 2008, I think they, they 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 realized they just had this kid who knew nothing about cycling, and they they put me in every race possible. I think yeah, I checked your 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 Palmares the other day, and uh, yeah, there are some quite interesting races there. I think I know <laughs> what what you're gonna say. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean races I've I've never been back to since. I mean they they put me in all the spring classics. Um, I think it was E3, Shell de Paris, Genfervogon uh, probably, um, what was Ronde van Drenthe in, in, in Holland, um, and then going driving through the night to start Paris-Roubaix the next morning as well. <laughs> and this is just, I mean, it's just such a crazy experience for me. I'd basically just fresh out of Africa uh, arrived on the pro scene and I had no idea I, I mean I didn't really follow professional cycling that much I didn't know the races I didn't know the riders but you did you had seen Roubaix on television I, I'd seen Roubaix on television I knew that was the race with all the cobbles yeah I, I'd never <laughs> I'd never ridden on cobbles before oh, um, shit. <laughs> and I can remember Arriving at Roubaix, uh, yeah, like two in the morning, uh, and Roubaix always starts pretty early, so I, was, I think I got like five hours sleep, and I just knew nothing about the race. And, um, and the day before, you'd been sitting sideways on the bike in crosswind <laughs> in flat Holland, and exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and I, I can remember seeing guys like putting tape around their hands or whatever on the bus i was like okay well uh yeah i better put some tape on my hands <laughs> like i just had no clue what was going on and um i i i thinking back to that time i don't think we even had special any special like cobble equipment on on team Ballerwald back then i think it was just the normal bike with normal wheels normal tires i look back at it now and i'm just like that was just crazy uh yeah i mean no one would do that now so um, how many how many uh punctures and shit did you have i i think i had i can remember needing to change a wheel once getting back uh, actually yeah go, go back to the peloton uh i gave I was the last teammate uh to be with baden cook who was the our leader on the day yeah. And um, I think it was somewhere just before the Arenberg, Baden, uh, Baden punctured. So I gave him, I gave him my wheel, um, and uh, tried to get back to the peloton afterwards, only to go into the back of a of a team car that slammed on brakes on the cobbles. And I think I just, I was nowhere near my brakes, and just went straight into the back of a team car <laughs> <laughs> needless to say i think that was that was it i think i got just over 200 k's into the race or whatever and uh, you yeah. didn't think about going all the way to the velodrome no no i think the the guys who i was with at that point were all talking about getting off at the feed zone and i was like okay, okay. i'm not gonna ride on my own here so <laughs> but is that that's one of the races where you really want to finish even if you're out of time limit or whatever you just want to go to that velodrome but maybe yeah. coming out of africa you didn't yeah, know about I, it i probably didn't even know there was a velodrome there like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> until i'd watched it on tv you didn't like, have a slideshow no. for the final and everything <laughs> one i would ask you about here was uh your post tour crit in denmark 
Ah, that was definitely an interesting one. Uh, I mean, as you know, um, as a Tour de France winner, you normally get invited to do a whole bunch of like uh, post post tour criteriums. Yeah, and um, I. I been to a few of them i'd done a few in like uh, belgium and holland and they're, they're pretty um pretty fun events i mean you go there and it's it's more of like a, a, sh- a show for the public it's a show, you, yeah, yeah you, you ride around and um it's uh it's yeah i mean it's good fun it's good fun but let's just say um the, it's the, also good fun in denmark the, the, the winners the winner's not normally the the strongest guy in the race let's put it that way yeah. for, for most of the the criteriums and um i got invited to come over to denmark and and do a criterium and i thought oh yeah that sounds that sounds cool i'm not doing the world this year um i think i'll i'll give that a go i'll i'll come uh, <laughs> come give this uh, criterium a try over in denmark and uh i i think i'd, I'd taken the flight over i'd probably just for the listeners this is the the criterium in uh, hestine and it is notorious for being the hardest crit in denmark <laughs> hardest crit in the world <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> in the world <laughs> um yeah little did i know i mean i i thought I, i took the flight there and i thought yeah we're gonna meet the race organizer he'll explain how how things are gonna go down and uh yeah do it and uh Uh, yeah hopefully try and make some plans for the evening get to see denmark a little bit and i, I wasn't really in like race mode if you yeah. like but i can remember landing and uh being picked up by the race organizer and he basically looked at me and he's like yeah um you, you you're ready to you're ready to race right i'm like yeah yeah of course of course <laughs> and he looked at me he's like no this is uh you you need to be ready huh? you need to be um it, this is a, a hard race yeah And I, I just had, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I can remember just, okay, I went there, tried to hang on the best I could. I can't even remember how long I lasted, but... Not long. Not long. Not long. Not long. I hadn't done, uh, I probably hadn't touched a bike properly since winning the Tour de France. Like no training days or anything. I'd just been doing like a few criteriums and some time off. And yeah. and then I came to this event in Denmark and it was just like, holy moly, these guys are going fast. I think it was <laughs> after 20 minutes we got away in a group. It was me, uh, Valgren was there, a few other Danish guys and Karg Andersen. And there was this was before we were pros. And uh, I think Karg And Kaganas and Cern, he won, and he caught you with one lap. Oh, it doesn't surprise <laughs> me. It doesn't surprise me. I, I can just remember the look on a lot of people's faces, like looking at me, like, eh, yeah, you, you just won the Tour de France, like, yeah, <laughs> you, you've just been lapped by. Uh, I by, have a photo some, somewhere some where I'm next guy. to you actually, and can just <laughs> see you have snot and spit coming out of your face, <laughs> really. Uh, Uh, not having fun and i i've just found my fall from that day i had 420 for normalized power oh okay well that makes sense why uh why i had stuff flying out of my nose and mouth at yeah. the time <laughs> yeah good good story um next one who is your nemesis in cycling nemesis no i mean um i've had a lot of obviously rival rivalries in my time yeah um other gc guys but i'd probably say over the years the guy i've kind of bumped heads with most uh given given it's it's uh we both had very similar goals a lot of the time is probably probably vincenzo nobody yeah given we were both gc riders going for the same kind of races um and you both had your like the peak years at the same time and Yeah, yeah yeah more or less same kind of age category and i th- I, th- i think yeah it's just natural i mean i guess uh, being a gc rider you're always gonna have someone you seem to have a uh, difference in opinion with and uh, for me it was probably probably nibbly over the years yeah any uh, examples Oh, nothing that really stands out i mean more just um, just fighting every day in in race yeah in race stuff and um Yeah, like I said, I think more just difference in diff- different ways of doing things, difference in opinions, and uh, yeah, just seem to be uh, the one guy I'd always bump heads with. Yeah, yeah, we all have them. Um, so, what rituals do you have before a race when you're on the bus? 
you have anything that's a bit odd or I know now you do exercises have you <laughs> always been doing that <laughs> yeah yeah I've been doing doing exercises for a, for a few years now um, quite often I'd um, I either try and do exercises on the bus like more like activation stuff yeah uh, just to fire like different muscle groups make sure everything's working and warmed up before going on the bike or um what, what i quite like to do sometimes is is actually go and ride the first few k's of the neutral zone um when i've when i've got time and we finish our meetings early enough mm. uh, go and ride the first few k's of the neutral zone and even find a quiet place just stop there and i'll stop on the side of the road somewhere and do do a few exercises like yeah. just to <laughs> just to kind of loosen off and get warmed up and then uh yeah get into the race and on the bus there's nothing uh like i always put my right number on the jersey first and uh, i always put 10 <laughs> pins in each number it has to be 10 <laughs> stuff like that that's a little bit no. uh, weird you believe in the soul thing for example yeah not really no 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 no, no. um we know reto's got his uh, his baby wipes that he enjoys <laughs> using before the race but uh, yeah that's a little bit of a private joke um yeah we um no i don't really have anything um funny uh, anything strange no. really that stands out i mean i always enjoy having some music on the bus yeah. um bit of a you're beat. a good dj ah thank you yeah. thank you i think there's a lot of people out there who might disagree uh, <laughs> and a shout out to the the jingle of this like the guy who made the jingle of this podcast the dj He's called Andreas Kongster. Ah, and yeah. you put on one of his numbers the other day. Yeah, 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 yeah. I put on one of his tunes the other day and I was just like, hey, this is this is a cool song. And you were like, hey, I know this guy. Yeah, so. I, I, I told him actually and he said that he would happily come play at your uh, birthday party awesome. if you're ever going to have one. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> so growing up in Africa, how did you catch on to cycling? It's a bit of a strange one, really. It wasn't really as if anyone in my family was really that big into it. Um, it was it was kind of my own thing. I mean, I I, I loved just being on my bike. It was it wasn't really about competition or racing. Or I was just one of those kids who just like lived on the bike. Like I'd always it was my mode of transport. I was my it was my freedom really. It's my wings as a kid to be able to get around to go and do what I wanted to do and not having to ask my parents to, to take me somewhere or yeah. um and growing up in Africa I had a lot of a lot of independence from a very young age, I think. So I could go out and explore the world as a <laughs> six year old on my bike. And yeah. I, I used to just go everywhere and anywhere on, on my bike and uh then I really enjoyed um, mountain biking, doing like tricks and jumps and stuff like that <laughs> on the bike. I'd spend hours just like jumping and trying to do maneuvers and crashing and falling and <laughs> learning the hard way. Yeah. Um, but it was only really when I went to school in South Africa, I think, as, as a as a teenager that I really discovered uh, road cycling and actually the side of cycling that you can actually train to be good good for good at being in an, in an event mm. uh, before that i think it was more just messing around on a bike and uh enjoying being on a bike yeah so how is the environment to become pro and do races there because i think for me and for most of europeans it's the same like we get into a local club and we have races every weekend we go to with the family and do the race and then you get older and you start to figure out if you can if, be something or not. or not yeah like you had races like it that was, in, so yeah. actually in south africa they they did have a lot of events yeah most of them are more like i'd say very similar to Grand Fondos. Yeah. It, it's almost like a mass participation event. Like there'd probably be a few thousand people at every yeah. every event. Um, but I started off actually even going, going to these road events with my mountain bike to start off with and found I was able to keep up with uh, most of the, the, the road guys in my group. And I was like, hey, this is this is kind of cool. I've, I've obviously got I've got a bit of an engine here, like I can keep yeah. up with these guys and I can remember... On your mountain bike. On my mountain bike, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got some slicks, uh, ah, changed yeah, the course. tires for slicks. Yeah. And 
once that got a bit, uh, I, I started sort of progressing and uh, I sort of figured out, okay, I've got to get myself a road bike now. It's getting a bit embarrassing. Um, yeah. I'd even like cut the handlebars and everything to make them more narrow and like <laughs> more streamlined. But it's like, no, okay, this is, this is embarrassing now. I need to try and get a road bike. And I can remember I saved up for probably about six months. I was doing all kinds of like different jobs and um things to try and uh try and save up and make a bit of money to to buy my first uh bike yeah. uh, road bike which and bike did it was it so i i'd actually found a, a second hand colnago i think i found it in Oof. the newspaper of all places yeah. like in the classified section of a newspaper mm-hmm. and i was like okay campagnolo get a, yeah campag old mirage campagnolo mirage um it's a nice ride and uh yeah so i was uh I was, I was chuffed to bits with with my new bike and uh it's just it just grew from there like um going going to the events on the weekend i found that i was able to sort of upgrade into different categories and mm. uh, what it, it was strange though because racing in south africa when i when i actually started racing probably sort of 17 18 like going to proper races and trying to race with my age group and everything um, the longest event there was 100 kilometers. They didn't really have anything that we could compare to European terms. Mm. So it was over in two, two and a half hours of racing. Yeah. And it yeah. was pretty flat. Not really. No, there weren't really any mountains around Johannesburg. So I didn't really shine at all, to be honest. I mean, I was there in the bunch, but I was always the slowest in the group. Like I, could, I couldn't sprint. And it was always like a sprint either from a small, smaller group or sprint from the breakaway or sprint just a bunch sprint so i'd never actually win anything no but i had this dream of like i think i was just infected by like the cycling bug at that time and then i that's when i started watching uh the tour de france on television i was just like yeah that's the kind of cycling i want to do not yeah. this hundred kilometer so uh, growing up there you didn't have any stuff of the pros at that time you that were like your idols or who were your heroes back then not really so i mean rewinding a little bit Back to my days in Kenya. Uh, so once I'd got into road cycling, I, I kept going back every year to go and visit my mother, uh, who still lived in Kenya. And I, I got to know uh, the, the professionals of the Kenyan national team. Yeah. And there was one guy who stood out, uh, this Rastafarian guy uh, who was the captain of the Kenyan cycling team. Yeah. His name was David Kinja. Yeah. And he he basically took me in and started every time I'd go back and visit my mother, I'd uh, probably spend two weeks with my mother and I'd probably spend two weeks uh, living at his house. He, yeah. he he lived in like very basic, uh, in, in almost like you'd call it probably a township, yeah. I guess. Um, but I, I'd love going and spending time with him, training with him every day. And um, he taught me so much about cycling that even to this day, like... I sort of, when I'm having a tough day on the bike, I'll, I'll go back to the sort of the principles that he would always teach me just about basically enjoying being on the bike and finding love for the sport. Yeah. Um, and there was something really special about what what he was doing out there because, I mean, he wasn't living, he wasn't living the life of like, certainly not the, the life of like the professional cyclists that, that, that we're, we we're used yeah. to yeah, in, in Europe um but he was he was training a lot of the young kids in the village and like teaching them how to progress and and how to how to look after their bikes and how to train and how to eat and he he taught started teaching me all these things and he he'd done a few international events and um world championships and things and he he was basically he shared a few of his stories and I was just like uh, blown away i i wanted to do what he'd done yeah i wanted to get to europe i wanted to to be on the professional scene so you get your contract with Bala world that's when you you go pro um yeah did you know already back then did you have a plan and did you have a goal to be the big champion that you've been the last many years no. did you back then like did you have this vision to say okay I'm gonna go for this. I'm gonna go for the tour. No, no, Or not at like, all. No. I mean, that first year as a neo pro with Barla World. I mean, they put me in every race possible. Scared the shit out of you. <laughs> scared, scared me. Showed me exactly what pro cycling was all about. And 
I was just like, whoa, I'm not sure about this. Yeah. Took me to the Tour de France in 2008, which was another eye-opening experience altogether. Um, it was just, I mean, I, I, number one, the speed of the race was just incredible. I just I'd, I'd not experienced anything like it. But even though I felt out of my depths, I had one or two days in that tour where I, I felt I was able to shine. Uh, the big sort of um, queen stage, I guess, going up Alpe d'Huez, I was able to to do the first half probably with, with the front GC group with Menchoff and some of, the, some of those guys. I think I came in, yeah, 30th of, yeah. Uh, as a neo-pro. Um, the final stage, stage 20 before going to Paris I think it was like a 65k individual time trial um, I think I was probably like 15th or something 14th um, good memory 14th yeah um, and then looking at that I think there were a good few names in front of me who got taken out a couple of years later <laughs> so um, yeah I mean I, I think I, I there were signs there of the potential that I had yeah but I was still clueless. I mean, I, I didn't know I didn't know how to train properly. I didn't know how to race properly. I didn't know where to sit in the peloton. I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't really know anything really about cycling. I, I just knew that I enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, I I, yeah, <laughs> I was just so fresh, I yeah. guess. Uh, but uh, it was it was also quite an eye opener for me that 2008 Tour de France because I'd come in to cycling thinking okay the the Lance Armstrong years are behind us now the the whole doping scene the Festina affair and everything yeah that's kind of been broken open and I, in my mind I was so naive I thought okay doping's kind of finished in cycling mm. but that 2008 Tour de France was it was horrendous I mean yeah. we had the whole of uh uh, which team was it then? I can't even remember. Gerolsteiner. They had some trouble. Gerolsteiner had Kohl, some He was third. And Cole Schumacher. Taken out, yeah. But um, um, we had uh, Ricardo Rico in that yeah. tour. And my own teammate, uh, uh, a Spanish guy called Moses, uh, who, who sat just opposite me on the bus uh, on the second rest day, he he was marched out by police. He had just tested positive for EPO, and I was just like, "Holy, what's like, going on? What's what have I what have I got myself into?" Like, the, yeah. I I thought the sport had like turned a corner, and um, so that was that was a pretty big shock for me. Um, but it was it was pretty pretty cool to see from from two thousand eight. I think it was two thousand nine. The the year afterwards, they introduced the blood passport and testing really ramped up. Yeah, out of competition testing, and I I I, I really believe that was a massive turning point in the sport. And thankfully, it came at, at that time um, because I don't think I would have <laughs> I would have survived much <laughs> longer in that kind of a sport. Okay, so then after Bala World, you go to Team Sky. And did they see a thing in you with all like to become a grand tour guy or was it a lucky shot getting in there or like did they really talk think, at you and have a goal with you? Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, certainly being being British had a, a big part to play with that because yeah. I think being the first British pro tour team, I think their first goal was probably to get as many Brits uh, from from the other teams as possible and put them all together. Mm. Um, I'd like to think they, they they saw some potential in me from from those first couple of years of racing at Barlowald and figured that if if they taught me how to how to train properly, how to eat properly, and uh, look after myself, that I'd, I'd be able to develop into into a, a stage racer, which was which was always my my dream. Um, I mean, having done that first Tour de France, I don't think I necessarily saw myself as uh, a rider to go and uh, contend for the overall victory at the tour. I never, yeah. I never really thought that uh, in my first years at all. I, th I kind of, the dream for me would was kind of like, okay, maybe one day I'll, I'll get in a lucky break and I can, I can try and win a mountain stage. That yeah. was like my, my kind of, my dream at that point. But I, I guess with, with Sky and working for for Bradley Wiggins in that 2011 Vuelta which was just like the turning point of my career yeah. um, my job was to be there with Bradley in the high mountains and I just felt like hold on I can, I can do this I can be here and I was there and 
the 10 guys left, five guys left, three guys left. And I'm, I'm still here. I'm still pulling. I'm like, hold on. I can, I can be one of the final guys here yeah. actually going for, going for a result. So that changed my mentality a little bit and kind of made it a lot more real and serious for me. And, yeah. uh, I think from then on that was, yeah, no looking back. Yeah. The rest is uh, history from there. <laughs> List. Let's uh, finish off. Um, last topic here is uh, what do you look forward to the most when the season is over? <laughs> In general. Um, I, I guess mean, your big party days are Yeah, my big party days you. are probably behind me. I'm not uh, I'm not really going going out clubbing much uh, no. anymore. Um the biggest thing to be honest is now now with two young kids spending time with them, yeah, with and, them and doing yeah. things that I just don't get to do in in the season I mean even things like simple things like going going hiking and going for a picnic in the mountains or something like that um, when, uh, when when I'm in season I obviously get back from a big training ride I don't have that much energy to go out and yeah, yeah. to do stuff with I them I know about it and I don't even have kids <laughs> <laughs> so I mean there's, there's that side of things uh, spending time with the family um, that's, um, that, that, that I really miss when, when, when I'm in season but also um, I'd say one of the hardest parts of being a professional cyclist is always paying attention to the diet yeah. um, and always being that little bit hungry. So you, you, you're always just burning a little bit. And so, trying, what is what is your guilt? What is your cheat meal? What is your guilt trying situation? to lose weight? So yeah, I, I would say I mean anything, anything and everything that you probably shouldn't have <laughs> during the season, <laughs> from pizzas to uh, ice cream to chocolates. Yeah. Uh, all the all the bad things um and and living uh living so close to italy i mean we've got amazing uh choice of food and restaurants there like um proper gelato we've yeah. got proper pizzerias is uh yeah yeah cool i think we're done thank you for uh doing this talk um and uh what's your what's your guilty pleasure my guilty pleasure oh i at the end of a season chocolate any like milk chocolate yeah or ben and jerry's ice cream oh i know about ben and jerry's the brownie fudge <laughs> yeah. that's uh, i'm into the cookie dough <laughs> you can even have a mix i saw with ah, the okay. cookie dough and the, <laughs> the the brownie yeah no i'm, I'm as well yeah. i go i go full when the season is over <laughs> still in my party uh, it's making me hungry now yeah right. and we have to go to bed big awesome. day coming up tomorrow so, great uh, speaking to you man and thanks for having me on the podcast thank you so much for uh, for doing it and uh, good night good night man <laughs> cheers imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.